Welcome to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Ranting at you in the wee hours of February 10th, 2024, as always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, which fortunately is not under aerial bombardment. Tonight, I'm going to continue to uh, take stock of the latest escalation in the Middle East and continue to note some discrepancies and omissions in the reportage. On last week's podcast or rant, we noted that a close reading of the news accounts raises some ambiguity as to whether the drone strike of January 28th, the deadly drone strike on U.S. forces that sparked this latest escalation, was actually, as widely reported, in Jordan, or, as some little-noted accounts indicated, in Syria, which is a significant distinction, because Syria is where these Iran-backed militias are already active allied with the regime in power there. Whereas, if the strikes were in Jordan, that meant the conflict was spreading to another country, which has heretofore been pretty peaceful, and is significantly a U.S. ally. Now, these same militias are also, somewhat ironically, active in Iraq and allied with the regime in power there, despite the fact that that regime is also being backed by the U.S. and grew out of the new government installed by the U.S. after the invasion of 2003, although it looks like that relationship has now reached a breaking point. As we've noted before, the Bush administration's strategy of favoring the Shiites because they had been disfavored under the Saddam Hussein regime, both led to the emergence of ISIS because now it was the Sunnis who were being excluded from power and getting pissed off, and again, ironically, allowed Shiite Iran to gain a foothold in Iraq. And for the past decade, at least, the U.S. and Iran have been playing this shadowy power game for control of Iraq. And now it looks like Iran is about to win, thanks to U.S. bungling and arrogance, with Baghdad demanding that U.S. forces leave because they are bombing those same militias. The last strike as I'm ranting tonight on the night of February 9th, was a U.S. drone attack in Baghdad two nights ago, February 7th, that killed a commander of Kataib Hezbollah, or the Battalions of the Party of God, one of the constituent militias of the self-declared Islamic resistance in Iraq. Two of his henchmen were also killed, although seemingly no civilians. This was not the case with the previous week's strikes on locations in 
western Iraq near the Syrian border, carried out by U.S. bomber planes, which are much less discriminating in their targeting. I want to bring your attention to a very important report on PBS NewsHour, February 7th, by their correspondent, Simona Foltin, who traveled to the site of those airstrikes, particularly in the towns of Akashat and Al-Kaim in Al-Anbar province, and spoke to survivors, including of a strike on a family home, and reviewed video footage of the aftermath filmed on a cell phone that captured, quote, the sobs of desperate relatives, unquote. And here I have to give kudos to PBS NewsHour for striking the right balance, because I have complained before about both cold and antiseptic reportage with no sympathy for the human beings on the ground, and about exploitative and emotionally manipulative propaganda that indulges in atrocity imagery like so much that is seen on social media. PBS NewsHour avoided either of those, but got it just right, conveying the reality of the suffering, but not in an exploitative way describing rather than playing the video footage other than a very brief clip, just a second or two, credit where it is due. But here's the critical point. Apparently, those towns, Akashat and Al-Kaim, were targeted because they are under the control of the 13th Brigade of the Popular Mobilization Forces, a paramilitary network integrated into Iraq's official security services, formed to fight ISIS back in 2014, and largely made up of Shiite militias backed by Iran, which, by the way, carried out very gruesome reprisal attacks against Sunni villages after liberating them from ISIS back at the time. I quote from Simona Foltine's report, This is the first time Brigade 13, also called Liwa Tafuf, was targeted by the United States, and many here are struggling to understand why. It's not a part of the four entities that make up another more secretive grouping, called the Islamic Resistance in Iraq, which has claimed responsibility for attacking American troops at bases throughout Iraq and Syria, end quote. One survivor she spoke to said, quote, we don't have anything to do with the attacks. They can't get to those who carry out the attacks, so they target those who are protecting the country's borders, end quote. Now, the report does acknowledge that Kateb Hezbollah also has bases near Akashat, and I imagine what is going on here is that Kateb Hezbollah is a constituent entity of both the Islamic resistance in Iraq and the popular mobilization forces. And the fighters might wear different uniforms, or at least different armbands, 
depending on whether they are bearing arms at one particular moment for the Islamic resistance in Iraq or the popular mobilization forces, but it's the same fighters and the same rifles. Once again, that's why they call it a great game. There was a perhaps similar situation in war zones I visited in Colombia about 20 years ago when things were really bad there. And the streets of a town were patrolled by day by the official armed forces, but at night by the ostensibly illegal right-wing paramilitaries. But it was pretty obvious it was the same guys with the same guns. But obviously, the U.S. is burning bridges with the Baghdad regime by bombing its official security forces. And this really needs more coverage. So big kudos to reporter Simona Fultine and PBS NewsHour for bringing this to light. She also spoke to a local tribal leader in the area named Rageb Al-Karbuli, who, when asked what the solution is to prevent further escalation, he replied through an interpreter, the solution is a solution to the Palestinian issue. An independent Palestinian state with full sovereignty will give an opportunity for security and peace in the entire region, end quote, which is certainly very clear. And of course, everything is going in the opposite direction. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu just rejected ceasefire terms proposed by Hamas, saying he will hold out for total victory in Gaza. Quote, if Hamas will survive in Gaza, it's only a question of time until the next massacre, end quote, which is a rather ironic thing to say when your military forces over the past four months have killed 28,000 people in Gaza. That's what the death toll currently stands at. The talks are being mediated by Egypt and Qatar and are expected to continue despite Netanyahu's rejection of the offer, which essentially came down to the so-called all-for-all or everyone-for-everyone plan in which the hostages or their remains are returned to Israel in exchange for the release of Palestinian prisoners being held by Israel. A solution which we at the Counter Vortex have been calling for from the beginning and is increasingly embraced by the families of the hostages who have been holding weekly demonstrations in Tel Aviv against the Netanyahu government for failing to bring home their loved ones. This is an encouraging development. I also note that, disgracefully, other Israeli protesters have actually been blocking the road leading to the crossing into Gaza to prevent aid deliveries from entering. I despair at such depravity. And this brings us to another insufficiently noted angle on a widely reported story that should be getting a lot more attention. 
Israeli claims of Hamas co-optation of UNRWA, the United Nations Works and Relief Administration, the agency responsible for Palestinian refugees, has, of course, led to a devastating cutoff of funds to the agency by the Western powers. Well, multiple news organizations have found no evidence to support Israel's claim that perhaps scores of UNRWA employees are Hamas collaborators. Upon having reviewed the dossier on the matter, prepared by Israeli intelligence. These news organizations include the UK's Channel 4, Sky News, the Australian Murdoch Network, and the semi-official France 24, which in its headline actually uses the moniker Dodgy Dossier, in quotation marks, from a uh, quote from a former UNRWA official, Israel has not shared its full intelligence report on the matter with either UNRWA or the UN Office of Internal Oversight Services or the media. But a six-page summary was leaked to a handful of media outlets, including the aforementioned three, which all concluded that there's no there there, so to speak, Nothing concrete to back up the claims. Nonetheless, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said, quote, We haven't had the ability to investigate the allegations ourselves, but they are highly, highly credible, unquote. That's really kind of amazing. With Gaza literally on the brink of mass starvation and in desperate need of UNRWA's relief efforts, that they are able to get away with such a cavalier attitude. As if any claims by any belligerent in wartime should be taken at face value. Come on! And I'm not sure if these findings by Channel 4, Sky News, and France 24 have been reported in, say, the New York Times. Have they? I couldn't find any reference at their website. And as for the prospects for an end to the siege and bombardment and some kind of deal between Israel and Hamas, well, here's another item that should have received way more coverage, although I'm frankly not sure what to make of it. The Hamas Media Office on January 21st issued a document entitled Our Narrative, Operation Al-Aqsa Flood, asserting that only military targets were struck in the October 7th incursion into Israel. Quote, if there was any case of targeting civilians, it happened accidentally and in the course of the confrontation with the occupation forces, the document states. This is reported rather credulously in Palestine Chronicle, a very partisan source, as the name implies. They link to a PDF of the document, which only makes the following rather 
oblique reference to the hostages, quote, Operation Al-Aqsa Flood on October 7th targeted Israeli military sites and sought to arrest the enemy's soldiers to pressure the Israeli authorities to release the thousands of Palestinians held in Israeli jails through a prisoner exchange deal. Therefore, the operation focused on destroying the Israeli army's Gaza division, the Israeli military site stationed near the Israeli settlements around Gaza, end quote. Now, the only way this can be narrowly, factually accurate, if still misleading, is if all the civilian hostages are held by Islamic Jihad rather than Hamas. And even that strikes me as extremely improbable. I mean, what are they negotiating about in Egypt, if not the fate of the hostages? So, I don't really find this document credible, but nonetheless, it should be reported. And I'll add that it is rather refreshing that they use the word narrative, as I've griped before, that that word um, implying subjectivity or spin is usually used only to discredit the other guy's point of view. Interesting that Hamas is implying it to their own. (laughs) Okay, and as long as I'm playing ombudsman here and examining discrepancies and omissions in the reportage, let me go over some errata concerning my own work. First, I stated twice on my podcast of November 26th and December 2nd, 2023, that the original 1988 Hamas Charter, which famously included a reference to the notorious anti-Semitic forgery, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, is still in effect. Uh, not so. I'm really embarrassed that this got past me, because when Hamas issued a new and superseding charter in 2017, I blogged about it. (laughs) And the new charter definitely represented a tilt in a more conciliatory direction, not only dropping the embarrassing reference to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, but broaching, at least, acceptance of a Palestinian state within the 1967 borders. Yes, still containing verbiage rejecting the legitimacy of the Zionist entity, but raising the possibility of a long-term peace and retreating from the previous position of a struggle till the end for Israel's destruction. I quote, Hamas rejects any alternative to the full and complete liberation of Palestine from the river to the sea. However, without compromising its rejection of the Zionist entity and without relinquishing any Palestinian rights, Hamas considers the establishment of a fully sovereign and independent Palestinian state with Jerusalem as its capital along the lines 
of the June 4th, 1967 borders, with the return of the refugees and the displaced to their homes from which they were expelled to be a formula of national consensus, end quote. The acknowledgement of the 1967 borders constituted a significant departure from the original 1988 charter, which held that, quote, all Palestinian land is sacred. There can be no end to the conflict with Israel, end quote. And uh, I'm going to go over some other moments from the past years and decades in which Hamas leaders have made similar statements. In June 2009, meeting with ex-President Jimmy Carter in Gaza City over efforts to free Noam Shalit, the Israeli soldier who had been abducted in the Strip and was ultimately freed in return for Palestinian prisoners, leading Hamas figure Ismail Haniya said that Hamas would be, quote, prepared to accept a state in the territories occupied by Israel in 1967, end quote. In July 2014, in the middle of that year's bombardment of Gaza, Operation Protective Edge, then Hamas leader Khaled Meshal said that the group was ready to coexist with the Jews. Quote, We are not fanatics. We are not fundamentalists. We are not fighting the Jews because they are Jews, per se. We fight the occupiers. I'm ready to coexist with the Jews, with the Christians, and the Arabs, and non-Arabs. However, I do not coexist with occupiers. End quote. And a decade before that, on March 22, 2004, tens of thousands of Palestinians took to the streets of Gaza City to mourn the death of Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, the wheelchair-bound 66-year-old leader of Hamas, who was killed in a targeted Israeli missile attack that day. A statement from the IDF said Yassin was responsible for numerous murderous terror attacks resulting in the deaths of many civilians, quote-unquote. But two days after the attack, former Mossad director Ephraim Halevi told Israeli television that in 1997, Sheikh Yassin had offered a 30-year hudna quote-unquote, hudna being the Arabic word for truce or ceasefire. Halevi said that the offer had not even been discussed in Israeli government circles. And get this, Islamic Jihad, the most rejectionist Palestinian faction, in 2005 said it was open to recognizing Israel and accepting a two-state solution. An Islamic Jihad leader in the West Bank, Abdel Halim Izzedin, known by his nom de guerre Abu Qasam, told Israeli newspaper Haaretz on August 3, 2005, quote, 
If Islamic Jihad participates in the Palestinian Authority and the PA reaches a settlement with Israel, this will be recognition on our part. Not official recognition, but recognition. End quote. Now, how do I read all this, and how does it square with what happened on October 7th? Well, I don't like Hamas, and I have been encouraged by the protests that have been breaking out against Hamas in the Gaza Strip in recent days, blaming the organization for unleashing this Israeli onslaught on the Strip and taking no measures to protect or even inform the populace beforehand. Hamas is a criminal organization, as is, of course, on a far greater scale, even if only due to its superior firepower, the IDF. That said, Hamas and even Islamic Jihad, like any political organizations, have more hardline and more conciliatory factions and tendencies, and which has the upper hand at a particular moment has to do with political context. And what has changed since Hamas was broaching a 30-year hudna a generation ago? Well, another generation of Israeli intransigence, deepening intransigence, continued and escalated illegal settlement of the West Bank, even if there was the Gaza withdrawal in 2005, followed two years later by the imposition of a blockade of the Strip after Hamas took power there, the mainstreaming of an annexationist position on the West Bank, and more and more open talk about transfer of the Palestinian population from the West Bank, and now also from Gaza, transfer, of course, being a euphemism for ethnic cleansing, and finally, the so-called Abraham Accords, the Trump administration's so-called peace plan for the Middle East, unveiled in 2020, which he, Trump, called the deal of the century, and the Palestinians rejected as the swindle of the century, basically a take-it-or-leave-it ultimatum to the Palestinians to accept the status quo of Bantustans, a fragmented quasi-state on the West Bank, to surrender much territory to actual Israeli annexation, to give up their long-standing demand for justice for refugees, and to call it peace. Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas, predictably, responded with a thousand no's to the plan, quote-unquote. But meanwhile, several Arab nations that had traditionally been backers of the Palestinians took the bait and recognized Israel, including the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco, joining Egypt and Jordan, which had recognized Israel in 1980, with Saudi Arabia apparently next in line. 
as an open quid pro quo for Morocco joining the deal, both the U.S. and Israel agreed to recognize Moroccan sovereignty over the occupied territory of Western Sahara, the only two nations on earth to do so, making the deal a betrayal of the Sahrawi Arabs as well as the Palestinians, as discussed in our podcast of July 29, 2023, entitled From the West Bank to Western Sahara. And thanks to this peace plan, the Palestinians were in a more desperate situation than ever. And October 7th was an act of desperation, which succeeded, I will point out, in halting the advance of the Abraham Accords. It doesn't look now like Saudi Arabia is going to be signing up anytime soon. Now, I do not support criminal tactics, even by the desperate. But it is also important to understand the context for criminal tactics. Once again, contrary to the French saying, to understand all is not to forgive all. But keeping this forgotten history in mind, maybe we can indulge a little optimism that if we can keep up the pressure on Israel for a ceasefire, there is the possibility for a de-escalation even now. Okay, I want to go over some other errata from my own ranting. On my podcast of October 18th, 2023, I noted reports of footage posted online by the Australian Jewish Association and featured on Sky News appearing to show protesters outside the Sydney Opera House chanting, Gas the Jews. Well, on February 2nd, the New South Wales Police released results of their investigation into the incident and said they did not find any evidence of protesters chanting, Gas the Jews. They instead found they were actually chanting, Fuck the Jews, which is not exactly kosher either. Now, I have to say I'm a little skeptical of these findings. Of course, Sky News is not the most reliable source, But I found the video on Twitter, and it really sounds to me like they were chanting, Gas the Jews. Sorry, it just does. Now, I don't have all the forensic techniques available to the New South Wales police, but I'm nonetheless a little skeptical. It smells like maybe the police are just trying to mollify us. Anyway, I hereby read this update into the record. And finally, I want to respond to a criticism from a listener who took issue with what I said in my podcast of January 21st, that amid all the bombardments going on around the world, Gaza, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, and that week, Iran and Pakistan, The media, 
mainstream, alternative, and social are more concerned about how the various actors line up in the great power game than the horrific realities on the ground. Yet, in that same rant, I had discussed and quoted from a PBS NewsHour report of January 18th entitled, American Doctor Who Worked in Gaza Describes Dire Humanitarian Crisis Civilians Their Face which did indeed include very graphic details of the carnage in Gaza. So, did I do exactly what I'm always complaining about people doing on social media? Posting something from the mainstream media and then saying, why isn't the media reporting this? Well, let me make clear that Gaza is not an underreported conflict. It is dominating the headlines, as well it should. And this coverage has included a good deal of reportage on the horrific realities on the ground. I was referring more to the various underreported conflicts, such as Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Pakistan, Burma, Mali, Burkina Faso, etc., Those last few especially just barely noted by the media, mainstream, alternative, and social. And in what little note is made, there is in fact very little concern with the humanity under bombardment. So a little clarity on that question and a good catch to the listener who pointed that out to me. A part of the reason I do what I do is to keep a close eye on the media coverage, not even so much for bias as for mere sloppiness and letting important angles go down the memory hole, work which has become more important in the current digitally driven climate with even the mainstream media laying off not only reporters, but copy editors, fact-checkers, proofreaders, and ombudsmen, as they used to be called. Instead, everyone wants to be fastest with the news, but accuracy comes second. And on social media, everyone just wants to score political points and accuracy be damned. I say, if you really want to be informed and accurate political conclusions and stances can only arise from a comprehensive grasp of the facts, you have to take accuracy seriously and pay close attention, which we will be continuing to do on the Counter Vortex, so stay tuned. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org where everything I've been ranting about tonight is fastidiously blogged up, documented, and hyperlinked. Support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash countervortex. We need your support to keep going with these weekly efforts. Join the countervortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.